Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This is Deacon John and Joe. Deacon, Deacon John, why Deacon John now, by the way? It's pretty awesome, but why are you talking like that, man? Oh, well, you, uh, you told me earlier that... Um, we need to think before we talk on this podcast, and for a extroverted sanguine like myself, that's impossible. So I was trying to really focus on what I say and think about it before I speak. Nice, man. No, I don't think it's nice. <laughs> I think it's actually going to destroy the podcast. I, I'm just going to have to keep talking the way we talk. Go so. ahead, man. Do you, know, you people, do your thing, man. People, I think I'm just talking about myself more than I was talking about you. But. Well, your sister said something, didn't she? She got upset because... Uh, oh, yeah. She says that my favorite word is crazy, and I probably say it about 16,000 times per podcast. So. Crazy. You know... Dr. Mike Zizda, a friend of mine here in Denver, said the same thing. He's like, what's with you young people always saying crazy? So, <laughs> so for your sister and for Dr. So Mike. So we got our thesauruses out, thesauri out. Thesauri. we're going to be using all sorts of crazy, crazy adjectives. Crazy <laughs> adjectives today because this is a crazy podcast. Totally crazy. The, uh, the topic today is pretty crazy, actually. Yeah. This, I, like, this legitimately is crazy. Now We're talking but, about dead dead. Alive people? We're talking about dead people. So speaking of which, it makes me think of the sixth sense, which my brother blew the ending of. He told me, you know, they're not, you know, they're all dead. I was like, great, thanks a lot. So that was the first thing I was thinking of today. But our podcast is not on the sixth sense and the fact that my brother blew the ending for me. Thanks a lot, bad. you jerk. But uh, it is on the best and the worst of the incorruptibles. The best and the worst. The best and the worst. I, I can thought, imagine what some of these people might be. Well, you might be thinking in your mind, okay, oh, you're starting to kind of spin through it. And people who know uh, and have been to Europe and have seen the Saints, you know there's some really amazing ones, and then there's some really uh, not-so-impressive ones. Eey, I've seen some with, crazy pictures. I have, yeah, I have a story with this, but I'll let you go. The uh, um, Yeah, so I, I do want to hear your story, though, because I, uh, I think you mentioned it to me in the past, and it's kind of funny. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll talk about it, so when, when she comes up, I'll, I'll bring it up. Okay, so the first thing we need to do is we need to talk about what is an incorruptible. An incorruptible is a saint, a, a canonized or beatified saint, whose body in some way has either A, not decomposed, or is extremely slow in the process of decomposition. So there's something uh, remarkable, something supernatural that's preserving the body that is just scientifically unexplainable. That's, that's what an incorruptible is. Now, you might not know this, but we have over 250... Um, possible candidates of saints and, and beatified whose bodies in some way are doing something out of the ordinary after their death. To over 250. That's wow. crazy. Um, a woman named Joan Carol Cruz wrote a book in the 70s called The Incorruptibles. That's kind of the famous one. She also wrote one on Eucharistic miracles, which is maybe we should do another podcast on that sometime. But anyways, she documents 105 of the kind of what she says, is like these are the big ones, 105 of the big ones. And so of those 105, I studied all of them. Yeah, right. Uh, but I, I think we have the best one figured out and the worst one. So, Oh, really? But before we do that, do you want to tell your story about the... Uh, well, are you going to talk about Catherine and Sienna? Yeah, I will. All right. Then is that the one? Yeah, I'll let you Okay. Go. Well, you just blew it. <laughs> Catherine and Sienna is the worst. She is pretty bad, man. And no offense, amazing woman. And St. Bernadette is... This is in our opinion. No one has actually said this before. This but is it, scientific, though. This is, this is, yeah, right. Um uh, but I think St. Bernadette takes the, she takes the cake and she, she is the, uh, she's, it's crazy, crazy how incorrupt her body is. And we'll get into that in a second. Okay. Let's do First it. thing we need to do is we need to do a little science first. What exactly is decomposition? Like what, what are we talking about with the body? And we got to talk about what is this embalming thing that sometimes happens. So, 
a brief word on uh, decomposition for you, Joe. All right, decomposition. Okay. So the body, um, when when a person dies, a, a body immediately begins scientifically begins a process of decomposition. This is by which the dead tissue of an organism breaks down into simpler forms of matter. So it's it's the body is breaking down. Now I could go on and on and on about all these different processes, but because um, there's all these different stages to it. But the important thing is that it happens immediately. The body decomposes immediately, so much so that you have to that um, there is a process that has to happen uh, by which and um, uh, funeral directors will have to to do things to the body just to manipulate it for a couple of days. Oh, to just look for like decent, the viewing and stuff. Even for a couple of days, because the first process that happens is um, this. Uh, well, there's all these processes of decomposition, but I don't want to bore you with it. Uh, the basic thing is that it gets real ugly real fast. Um, first. Uh, the the chemical breakdowns start to happen and uh, the body just starts to kind of the muscular tissue starts to go. The second thing that happens is there's this like bloating. I saw this this summer. I was backpacking and walked past this dead um, cow, and then a couple days later we came back and it was like four times the size. And, and then it starts to completely collapse. And the last thing really to go is the bone structure and actually the skin. But the all is the last thing. Well, the skin and then the bones. But the uh, all the internal organs and all the tissues start to kind of just collapse, and there's all this kind of chemical breakdown that happens. So it's it's really um, kind of a disturbing process. Do you know how much like I've thought this when I've seen some incorruptibles when I was in Europe? Mm-hmm. Like what like what is a what does a normal body decompose down to like skin and bones to? Uh, whereas like what can we compare the corruptibles to? Do you know? It all depends on um, time. I wanted to be like, oh, it's this many days or this many months, but it, it really depends on the on the situation. In particular, just like the atmosphere, the dryness, the dryness of the air is actually the primary thing, and then kind of uh, um, how much insects can get involved with the the process because they. But uh, essentially, that's what affects it. So it it can vary. Even it can go a body can go months even really without fully decomposing. Um, in a very dry climate, like in Colorado, I think you know if we were to be buried, it would be lo- longer than in you know some place like Philly or something like that, where your body would go pretty quick. Um, so I don't know exactly what to say, like how many days or, or what does it look like exactly. We'd have to bring in a, somebody who actually knows something about science, unlike myself. Uh, but the, the the whole purpose of it is um, that it happens immediately immediately there is not this kind of like the body just kind of chills out for a couple months and then you know because uh, there's a lot of people who are really skeptical of this whole incorruptible thing is that really the case i mean that's kind of but we're talking about people who have whose bodies have not decomposed over hundreds of years this isn't like wow one year later you know isn't that amazing <laughs> but it's like hundreds of years have passed um for some of these bodies and they remain um if not totally incorrupt then um, the the process is unbelievably slow. Awesome. So uh, one last word on the embalming process. What is the embalming? Yeah, why do people get embalmed? Okay, it's a process by which you delay the comp- the decomposition. So um, it, but there's no way to stop it. But embalmers will come in, uh, and there's this there's kind of chemically inducing uh, a body so that it just kind of uh, kind of preserves it, so to speak. But it, it usually doesn't last that long. Um, there's even a way you can submerge it in peat. Uh, peat bog there you go and naturally naturally embalm a body so uh it's uh, embalming is is a process and something we've done for uh for many many years and there's still people who are embalmed like uh 
Vladimir Lenin. You probably didn't know that his body was embalmed and uh, enshrined. Oh yeah, you know, in he's Soviet in the Soviet the world. Square. But he's not incorruptible. His body was embalmed, and it kind of lasted a little longer. But what is? Unfortunately, I have a question. I'm yes. sorry. Yeah, um, what is the? Because I know like John Paul II embalmed. A lot of popes will be embalmed. Right. What's the purpose of it? Is it just so there can be an extended viewing? You know, like John Paul II, his body was laid out for a while. Like, right. Oh. Typically, that's the purpose is is for kind of an extended viewing. Um, and if you go to St. Peter's now, um, John the Twenty Third, who was embalmed. Um, um, it's still, you can still see him and it's been about 40 years, 50 years since he's died. Now the question is, is his body incorrupt? We're not sure because the embalming does affect it in such a way. So it, it, it will be a while. It'll be a while. Really I know. mean, cause I saw John 23rd and he looked great. He's looking good. He's looking, he's looking, he's looking pretty good. Looking good looking guy. Lost a lot of weight since last time I've seen him. But yep. There, uh, there is, um, there is thoughts though that he could be incorrupt. Which yeah, is pretty my wild. parents when they went to Rome and they, this is before they exhumed his body. They hadn't <clears throat> since he'd be buried. And my mom remembers praying at his tomb and just feeling a real strong presence of the Holy Spirit. And and I mean, she was alive, uh, obviously when he was alive, and she loved him. He was the Pope when she was growing up. Um, but uh, I, she remembers, she remembers uh, praying at the tomb and just having such a powerful experience in prayer. And then it was like a couple months later, soon after that, where they exhumed his body and said, he may be incorrupt. So. Exactly. And that's what happened is that they embalmed his body and then uh, for the viewing and then they buried him and then they um, uh, exhumed him and then they placed him back in public, in a public place of reverence. And the, his body looks pretty dang good. He's not the best, but he's he's looking good. And like we said, it's so recent that we, we can't make a judgment on that. But yeah, there, there, is, there is something there. And that's pretty exciting to cool. see how that kind of plays out in All our right. lifetime. So let's go to St. Bernadette. St. Bernadette, uh, I have never been to, uh, well, if I was just going to butcher it, Nevers is what it looks like, Nevers. Nevers. Have you been to Nevers? I have not. Okay, our friend Bernadette Mangini, who's going to be married in a month, she's going to be Prokaska, she went and she said it's just absolutely beautiful. And that was the first time I ever really learned about uh, St. Bernadette's body because she she visited the place and saw it. And it's absolutely um, breathtaking, I guess, for someone who's been there. So who is St. Bernadette? She was born in 1844, uh, died when she was about 35. And she is the uh, the child who received the 18 apparitions of Our Lady in uh, Lourdes. So she's connected with Lourdes. And uh, the story behind the apparition, really briefly, because it's beautiful, uh, her family was really, really poor. Um, and they lived in a single unheated room. And uh, her sisters and her went out to um, collect. Uh, they were collecting firewood and bones to burn in this in this kind of little room. And they were in this grotto, kind of down by the the river. I can't pronounce any of these French words, but outside of Lourdes, a little ways. Uh, and that was the place where this this um, small young lady, as she described it, appeared to her and and spoke. Uh, the contents of the visions um, were very simple. There was a need for prayer and penance, but the main thing was that she revealed herself as the Immaculate Conception, the Immaculate Conception yeah. which was something that was being um, determined. Uh, whether to be defined as a dogma at the exact same time yeah, in Rome. When was when was Lords happening? Lords was happening. Uh, well, it's this was 1858. Um, she was 14 when okay. the apparitions began, and then I think the um, I think the 19 1871. I think was the first Vatican Council. That's a guess. I don't know. Uh, that's just off the cuff. But I think it was it was right around the same time. So much so that they were because th- the investigations and the the theological studies had begun in preparations for the for the council uh, before. So, anyways, we'll have to come back to that. Yeah. I'll, have to, I'll have to look research that a little more. But, anyways, her life is just fascinating, and uh, she ended up in a convent, and then, like we said, she died young at about thirty five. Um, but then it gets crazy. So the bishop of Nevers or whatever um, exhumed the body. Uh, in 1909, 
right? So this is like 50 years later uh, in the presence of doctors um, and some of the religious. And, and they claim that this body appeared incorrupt, quote, incorrupt, preserved from decomposition. Uh, and this doctor who said, this is in 1919, when they exhumed it again, he said the body is practically mummified, covered with patches of mildew and quite notably uh, layers of salt. But the skin appears to be almost completely preserved. Wow. And the whole body has this form. And this is, he says this, he says, what struck me during the examination, of course, was the state of perfect perfection of the skeleton, the fibrous tissues of the muscles, still supple and firm of the ligaments. Because remember, the first thing that happens is that the muscles go tight because blood isn't going through the body. So you can say, ah, well, whatever, the bones are still there. But the muscle was still soft. This is like 60 years later. That's crazy. Amazing. Her muscles were soft? They were soft. The muscles were still supple and firm. Supple. Yet firm. So they were like human muscles of the ligaments and of the skin. And above all, the totally unexpected state of the liver after 46 years. One would have thought that this organ, which is basically soft and inclined to, to crumble, would have decomposed very rapidly and would have hardened uh, into a chalky consistency. That's what this doctor is saying. That is necrolicious. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Joe. You're just trying to use fancy words now. This is incredible, Joe. Um, so that's what the doctor was saying, and this is 46 years, 50 years after. Um, and you can go to Nevada, and you can see her, and she is just gorgeous. She's beautiful, beautiful. So like, look her up online, uh, Google this, whatever, Wikipedia. But uh, Saint Bernadette is uh, it, her body is still laid out. She's still preserved, and and everything is perfect. All of her years. organs, everything is perfect. Now they talk at one point about taking her heart out. Um, but uh, which is kind of I don't, I don't know why we do this. It must be a very it must be a very European thing. Like oh, let's take the body apart, you know. Um, but uh, to venerate the heart because it was such a pure and beautiful heart. But um, the doctors kept saying this body is so intact that don't do not we don't want to take anything apart because it would be like ripping into a living body, right. so to speak. So, so isn't that wild? So, so awesome. uh, you you can't see her just her heart. I'm sorry about that, but. Uh, but you can go to Navarre and you can see uh, this incredible saint, still totally incorrupt, who we say today is the best. Now, we might get a lot of emails back, Joe, people saying, ah, such and such I saw this other saint. And like I said, there's a lot of them. And I'm open to critique, but uh, at this point... From yeah, what if you I, know of any cool incorruptibles, we want to hear about them. Exactly. So let us know. Exactly. And you can, you know, give us a, a little challenge here. That's, ah, oh, she's not the best. You know, something like that. So, that's the best. Who's the worst? The worst. Well, we, saint we know. St. Catherine of Siena. Now, we don't want to dog St. Catherine of Siena because she's... One of the uh, Doc- three doctors of the three doctors. Saint female, Therese is one, and Saint, Saint Teresa of Avila. Mm-hmm. So she's one of three doctors, women doctors of the church. Uh, so, like theologically, that's what we mean by doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the great mystics of all time. Right? She, you know, the whole reason she, one, what she's very much known for. A lot of people talk about is the Avignon papacy, and she went to Avignon, France, where the Pope had been there for a few generations of popes, and said, "You belong in Rome. You're the Bishop of Rome." and got the Pope to come back to Rome, which exactly. is pretty wild, especially for a woman to go to, you know, one of the most powerful men in the world. And to- oh, yeah, and there was so much temporal power in the papacy at the time. And she is, uh, she's just one of the most fascinating people in the history of the world. I yeah. think we, I say that every time I give a podcast on history, but she really is. I mean, you just have to read about her life. 14th century, she was born in 1347, died in 1380. So again, um, not that old. You know, she was uh, uh, less than 40. I think she was 33 when she died. Um, she was the, this is crazy. She was the 24th of yeah. 25 children, kind of like your family. I know. I'm like, I'm the second to last. We got oh, you're only nine, ninth of 10, but close, close, you know, maybe Joe Doman would be, you know, 
Uh, we'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not. Uh, we don't want to offend your mother. The uh, but yeah, twenty fourth child. That's just crazy. Um, here's another fascinating thing about her life. So she she lived on the Eucharist alone for the last couple of years of her life. She just stopped eating food, um, and she said, "I find no nourishment in earthly food." Isn't that funny? So she just received the the communion daily, and that's what she lived on for the last five years of her life. When she died, she was buried in the cemetery in Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, which is near the Rome. Pantheon in Rome. Mm-hmm. Okay, huge problem, though, because Siena wanted her, Rome got her, uh, and then this whole kind of weird thing ha- ended up where her head was parted from her body and uh, ends up in Siena. Yeah, the Siena people wanted her. They wanted, wanted part of her. Well, they wanted the whole body. Do you, know, do you have the story about how they got across the lines? No, do you know that story? Yeah, this is, I read a biography about Excellent. it a couple years ago. So she, they somehow got her head... Uh, I don't know why people do this, but they took her head, put it in a bag, and they were mo- trying to get, smuggle her into Siena. And you know the political authorities at the time, there was all this stuff going on, and they really wanted to keep her body there. And so when they were getting, I guess, like inspected when they were trying to go into Siena, leave Rome, uh, one of the guards had them open the bag where her head was, and they opened it, and it was just a bunch of rose petals inside. Huh. And 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 that was it. And they closed it and went, got her head to Siena. So wow. a little a little miracle after post. Uh, Posthumously. Posthumously. And this all happened like right after the time that she died. Um, and uh, But her body wasn't corrupt. And um, when she was canonized in 1461, we knew about this body. So this was already, you know, 70 years afterwards. And they're venerating it. And the head is still there, which is just weird. Um, <laughs> and then uh, and her body was um, laid out in um, outside of the church and then eventually brought and it's beneath the altar. So now if you go to Rome today, you can pray in Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, which is a fascinating church because it was built over the temple to Minerva. Um, and it was a church after Our Lady. So um, she's buried there right beneath the altar. It's the Dominican church. She was a third order Dominican um, who had a vision of St. Dominic. And, and so it's just a beautiful, beautiful place to pray. But you go to Siena and you see her head. This is the worst part, I guess. I think this is the worst part. It is It is unbelievable that 700 years later, you're, we're still looking at this head, right? It should just be like, you know. Dust or something. Dust, exactly. Or at least a skull. But it is a head. It is a head. Have you been to Siena? Okay. Uh, I don't remember. Okay, yeah, you were you were in Europe. I was in a lot of places. You went to a lot of places, exactly. I don't think so. And you were, yeah. Um, my sister went there and said it was it was kind of disturbing, and she was asking me about it, and that's why I started researching it. I've never been to Siena. I've heard it's an amazing town, um, and her head is like we said, it is um, quote unquote incorrupt because of the decom- the decomposing process has been extremely slow over 700 years but nevertheless there has been some decomposition <laughs> exactly i would like to emphasize the uh, quote unquote <laughs> incorrupt exactly. because i don't i wouldn't say i mean just from seeing pictures it doesn't look very incorrupt it looks like just like slightly corrupt exactly. or like it's, exactly. it's only corrupted a little bit but it's it, definitely not incorrupt it's definitely not incorrupt but that's important is that the incorrupt is kind of a, a, an umbrella term it nevertheless means, it, means so it everything is, from yeah. a, a body totally completely preserved um to well, our friend Saint, you know, it's Catherine of Siena, whose head is just a little. But nevertheless, it's still it's so remarkable and miraculous. And I mean, it's definitely out of the ordinary. And if we had Saint Catherine of Siena and Saint Bernadette sitting here, of course they wouldn't be fighting about this. But if we could try and get them to fight about it, I think Catherine would say, "Hey, it's been seven hundred years, Bernadette. All right, you've been doing this for what, one hundred and fifty? It's like you know, you come back to me in five hundred fifty years, and, and we'll see how your head's looking. That's probably what they would say. So seven hundred years—that's a long time. So we don't want to just stick it to Saint Catherine. Uh, her life was absolutely incredible. 
Um, both these women are just fantastic. They're awesome. So my question is this. Yeah. Why do we, I mean, especially with the case of St. Catherine of Siena, it's kind of, I just look at this thing and I'm like, wow, this is kind of disgusting. I mean, you can, you can Google it and see a picture of her uh, partially corrupt face and head. Um, but I'm like, why do we keep these things out? Like, this just, maybe this helps some people to pray and maybe it's like, wow. I mean, Bernadette, I can kind of understand. But even that, it's like, What's with these dead people right, lying around? Why right. are we looking at them? Right. It is. It is. On first look, it's like, man, this is a really weird Catholic thing. You know? Exactly. What, that, that, I think that's what most people guys, would be exactly. like. Exactly. You got Vianney's heart. Oh, let's pray in front of Vianney's heart. And we got, you know, Catherine's head and all these. It's just like, you know, I think it's Xavier's hand um, is in the Jesu in Rome. It's just like, what is the deal with this? Well, you have to, you have to ground this theologically, which is the incarnation of, of Christ, the eternal word, when he comes into nature grace permeates the natural realm and it does and there are miraculous things that happen because of that so we we often are are very gnostic and we think like grace and the spiritual and god only affects our spirit so to speak right but in fact it permeates our whole life and when a person's life is consumed with the grace of god with the love with the inner life of god that it actually affects their body as well Right, and that's a fascinating thing, yeah. and that's why this is reflected in many of the saints—not all of them, obviously, but many, many of the saints. Um, and this is just a sign of their sanctity. Now, is this the reason they're canonized? No, they're canonized based on heroic virtue. They're canonized based on on miracles. Right, uh, but this is kind of an effect. So, is this something like you have to believe? You know, no. But is it is does it speak of the nature of how God's grace is active in the church and how it works in the lives of the saints? Absolutely. And for that sake, it's worth me. So it's Absolutely. I, yeah. I do think it's beautiful. I mean, it's a reminder that the body does matter. The resurrection of the body is real. Like, it's not like we're these spirits enslaved in this body. Exactly. And exactly. Everything is redeemed. So Exactly. And that's all I got. It's awesome. Well, great job, man. Hey, thanks, dude. Yeah, dude. Do you, uh, do you have any uh, letters for us? Oh, uh, yeah. We got a listener mail. Here we listener go. Listener mail. Okay, here um, we, we go. We got just one here from... It says Ricky Williams, but then the email <laughs> says Joseph O'Sullivan. So I'm going to go with uh, oh, O'Sullivan Joe. since I know this guy. Uh, he says, Joe and Deacon John, it was mentioned that while the married person's union with God is mediated by his or her spouse, the priest ascends straight to the top of the mountain. It was also mentioned that the primary reason for celibate priesthood is contemplation. Knowing that can married couples live a contemplative life also, or is it just reserved for priests? So can married people be contemplatives? Okay, that's a good question. I think it's it's a distinction. He's going back to our podcast on celibacy continence. On celibacy and- continence and chastity. And it's a good question, Joe. The uh, uh the funny thing is Joe probably knows the answer to this and he probably could answer it better than I could. Um but nevertheless, can lay people, can married people live a life of contemplation? Of course they can. Of course they can. But their contemplation looks different. Because they are now one flesh. So you cannot separate your life from your spouse because you are bounded together in Christ. He, he has bounded you together in the sacrament of marriage. So when we say that, the, uh, the, that celibacy is for the sake of contemplation, it is. It's, that it's the contemplation of the marriage of heaven, that eschatological marriage, versus uh, the contemplative life of the married couple. Now in this life, you're bounded together. Does that mean you always pray together? You never pray separately? No, but it but there's it just changes the way that you pray. You're now one flesh together, so your contemplation is bound up in your in your sacrament. It's not less, and I hope we didn't leave that impression like it's less of a sacrament. Like oh, now you're stuck here with this other person. No, it's it it is your way to sanctity, and it is your way to the marriage of heaven. And contemplation is the way that you enter into that marriage of heaven. That's why celibacy is a part of that. And so everything in the married person's life. 
should be ordered to con- contemplation as well. Absolutely. But it's done through their vocation, through their state in life. And there are examples of this in history. I mean, St. Saint, Saint Monica, St. Saint Augustine's mother, exactly. was a contemplative. There's exactly. St. Uh, the guy who was just ordained, uh, St. Therese's parents right. um, were, are beatified now. So, I mean, married people obviously can reach a high level of prayer as well. Oh, um, But yeah. it does look different. So Exactly. Good stuff, man. Well, great job. I, I, I applaud you for stepping out of, you know, your, I guess, expertise in the theological realm to go to more scientific. Yeah, you know, I, it really is. This is this is pushing it for me. So you did a good job. So hey, good work, man. Thanks, man. Um, I think that's all for today. I got to say happy birthday to my niece, Abby, who uh, probably is not listening, but her... Her mother, whose birthday is also today, Jackie, is listening. And so happy birthday to them. And uh, we'll see you next week. Very cool.